Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angie Fryermuth. And I'm Aaron Snyder. Today's guest is Will Veach, the acting lead for USACE Climate Preparedness and Resilience Community of Practice. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks, Aaron and Angie. It's great to be here. For today's episode, we're going to learn more about climate resilience. But before we get started, we want to get to know a little bit about our guest. Will, can you tell us about yourself and how you came into this position with the Corps? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. I have been working with the Climate Preparedness and Resilience Community of Practice since 2012. I first started out with the Corps of Engineers as a hydrologist in the New Orleans district in 2008. I was doing the leadership development program for Mississippi Valley Division and I needed to do a developmental assignment somewhere. And so I had a few ideas of topics I was interested in and I reached out to some people and cold called around. And I ended up contacting Dr. Kate White, who is the lead for climate preparedness and resilience for the Corps of Engineers and asked her if I could do a developmental assignment at headquarters working on climate preparedness. She brought me on and I've been working in this space uh, ever since. Since 2015, I've been a regional technical specialist within Mississippi Valley Division for Climate Preparedness and Resilience and the lead of our hydrology, hydraulics and coastal sub community of practice for climate adaptation. So as the now acting lead, I'm wearing three different hats and that's been interesting, but um, it's a really exciting time to be in the climate world. We're doing a lot of great things. Thanks, Will. Uh, it's always great to hear an MVD emerging leader doing good things. So appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. As Aaron mentioned, we're going to talk about climate resilience today. And really, uh, climate change in general has been a priority area for the current administration. And there's been a lot of focus on this at all levels of the government. And so, Will, we know climate resilience is built into uh, the foundation of core projects and even designing and constructing those for years, but can you explain to our listeners what the meaning of climate resilience is and why it's important to our projects? Sure, I'd be happy to. The interesting thing about the word resilience is that it means so many different things in so many different contexts. If you talk to a public health person or a sociologist, what they talk about when they mean resilience would be very different from a geotechnical engineer talking about a levee. And so it's important to define these terms. And the way the Corps of Engineers uses the term resilience is within what we call the PARA framework, which stands for prepare, absorb, recover, and adapt. So resilient systems are systems that are prepared for extreme events. They can absorb the impacts of the extreme event without being damaged, or if they are damaged, then they can be repaired. And when they recover, they can recover quickly. And in some cases, you can actually opportunistically improve the system so that it bounces back even to a higher level than before. And then the last A stands for adapt, which is really where a lot of the climate considerations come in. So adaptation is changing what you're doing in response to observed changes and adjusting uh, a system or an approach so that it remains relevant and performing no matter the conditions. If resilience is this PARA framework, then climate resilience is exactly that, but with the climate considerations mainstreamed throughout. 
I think that's really helpful for me because I've always been confused as exactly what resilience means. And to me personally, I always thought of it as like the resilience of the person, the person impacted, like how quickly can they bounce back? But when you described it as the system and the course focus on the system and how that can absorb that shock of a, a storm or an, an event, and then we can recover from it being that system focus that really helped me put it into context of the core of engineers and the, the projects that we do. Could you give us some examples of how this resilience has been incorporated into some of our projects? Of course, but I also want to respond a little to what you just said, because it is critical to remember that all of these projects exist for the benefit of communities or ecosystems and not just for themselves. And so it is with community resilience in the end. That's really the important part. The system resilience is sort of a means to an end. I think that when we look at resilience, the key thing to keep in mind is that resilience is a trait. It's a, an attribute of a system or of a community or of a person or of a project element. Whereas adaptation is an action. It's a thing that we do. Adaptation is really a key part of resilience, but resilience also can be a key part of being adaptable. So that, that may be helpful to keep that in mind. But sure, examples, climate preparedness and resilience is something that we mainstream throughout our project planning process. So basically any project that you can find especially if it was planned since 2009, should be including climate considerations. So the first easiest example is sea level change. Uh, sea level change is the biggest, it's the most immediate, it's the most impactful climate change effect, impact. But in many ways, it's also the simplest one because the sea level over time tends to just go up. So we have a question of how fast is it going to go, but not really any question about whether it's going to change or which way it's going to change. And so this is comparatively easy to build into our coastal projects. If you're building a coastal seawall or an ecosystem restoration project for a, a marsh or some aquatic ecosystem, it's fairly simple to use projections of future sea level. And for our purposes, we use three curves, three scenarios. And you build that right in to your design. So any coastal project, if you can imagine a marsh or uh, a wall or a levee should reflect that future condition. So we're not building for the conditions of the past. We're not even really building for the conditions of right now. Those are climate changed conditions that are built in. Now for inland hydrology, for changes to river flow frequency, it becomes much more complicated. So if you wanted to think about, let's say, a navigation channel on an inland river, there's reasons to believe that as the climate warms up, the, earth, the air can hold more water, there's gonna be more uh, precipitable moisture in the atmosphere. And so we can expect heavier extreme rainfall, for example. But there's a lot of processes that matter in between rainfall and river flow. And so we can't just project in the same way that we can in the sea level. So if you're doing a navigation project on a river and you want to incorporate future climate change, what we do instead of that projected future condition, we have a number of tools that help you evaluate observed and projected changes and consider how those changes could impact your project. So you're talking about potential vulnerabilities. A lock or a channel would be looking at projections of future flows 
and observed changes in past flows and considering how those things could impact the design and then what sorts of adaptation steps could be taken to address that, those potential vulnerabilities. Thanks, Will, for giving us those great examples on how we're incorporating the resilience into our, our projects. I do want to talk a little bit about the, the recently released climate action plan. Can you talk about the plan and how it's helping the administration advance their climate goals? The Corps of Engineers Climate Action Plan is a document that we developed in response to Executive Order 14008 that was issued on January 27th. And that executive order required all agencies to develop focused and streamlined plans outlining actions that we'll take to perform climate preparedness, adaptation, and resilience, uh, as well as address agency vulnerabilities to the impacts of climate change. So our climate action plan is a focused plan consisting of five actions. Those actions are first to modernize USACE programs and policies to support climate resilient investments. So that's really about changing the way we do what we do to make sure that when we invest, we are doing so in climate prepared and resilient ways. I wanna point out though, that this really for us is a continuing action. We've been recognized leaders across the interagency in this space for a long time. So changing what we do is something that we've been working on and we will continue to work on. But that is uh, action one. Action two is managing our lands and waters for climate preparedness and resilience. So we are the stewards of a large amount of public lands and waters. And we take a lot of actions in the interest of operations and maintenance and asset management. And there's a, a number of things we can do under this action to do those things in a climate informed way so that when we make our maintenance or uh, investment decisions on these lands and waters that we own, we're doing so with climate preparedness in mind. Our third action is to enable state, local, and tribal government preparedness. I think we all recognize that we are an agency that works closely with our project sponsors and other partners and stakeholders. And so to make that partnership work, it's not enough for us to be able to perform climate adaptation. Our partners need to have that ability as well. And so action three is all about leveraging our capacity building programs, like the planning assistance to states or silver jackets, um, the tribal liaisons, and helping our partners increase their capacity and also helping us to understand their capacity so that we can put that knowledge into action. Action number four is about providing actionable climate information tools and projections. So we are not a science agency. We don't perform climate science research, but what we do is partner with other agencies as well as the academic world and national laboratories. And we take climate science and we take it and put it into a form that our teams can use. So we make web-based tools, we write guidance documents, we teach training classes, we make clearing houses of data, and our teams can take that information and put it into use. Action five is planning for the climate change related risks to missions and operations. So this is all about planning ahead and being prepared with things like continuity of operations plans, data backup, 
cross-training of district personnel so that when we do have disruptions that are more common as the climate changes and what used to be extreme becomes more normal, we're prepared and we're planning ahead um, so that we can continue to deliver our missions and operations according to our authorities. In addition to those five topics, the Climate Action Plan also has three additional topic areas. First is updates to our climate vulnerability assessments. And so this is where we lay out actions for things like assessing our portfolio of existing projects to see where an existing project may be vulnerable to climate change in a similar way that we might do so in a planning study. But basically prioritizing projects for further study based on how exposed they are to climate exposure to extreme events. Another vulnerability that we've identified, it goes back to this idea of the partner's capacity and our need to improve our understanding of what our partners can do. We have some partners that are very savvy and, and very well resourced and others um, that don't have as many resources. And so our understanding of what adaptation steps we can expect our partners to perform when we turn over an adaptable project represents a vulnerability to us. And so we've identified that as something that we need to address. A, a third topic in this plan is efforts to enhance the climate literacy of our management workforce. We realize that throughout the agency, we need to become a more climate literate entity. And it's actually at the working level where we have quite a bit of climate savvy subject matter experts and a lot of people who are recent college graduates know a lot about climate change now, but maybe at the managerial levels, we still have a ways to go and we still have a ways to get people to where it's not just something that they know about, but something that they're really putting into practice. And so we have identified a climate literacy and training plan, and we're going to be developing climate modules for the senior executives course, the general officers course, the commanders course, uh, as well as uh, climate for leaders uh, training briefing. So that's our, our second uh, special topic area, our third topic overall. And then the final topic of the climate action plan is our efforts to enhance the climate resilience of our facilities, sites, and supply chains. So we recognize that as the climate changes, the uh, risk of supply chain breakdown that we've kind of all observed in the last year or so with, with COVID becomes more real and more impactful. And so we've identified some of the things that we believe are vulnerabilities and are areas that we can continue to investigate and invest in to make sure that we're prepared at our sites, facilities, and supply chains for these changes that are either occurring already and we can observe that they're happening or that they are uh, reasonably foreseeable, projectable future conditions. So all of those things that I mentioned in the Climate Action Plan are all aligned with administration priorities. They're all things that we worked through based on instructions from CEQ and through meetings, through many rounds of revision. And so we feel very uh, confident that we are supporting the administration's goals with this plan in the form that it, it now has. And it was just released on, on Thursday. So 
Well, that that's awesome. It sounds like you have an awful lot on your plate, and it kind of makes me think you talked about this plan and the primary components, and then each of the subcomponents, and it really made me wonder. So, so what does all this look like in the future when this is all came together, um, and we've kind of achieved the the goals of these plans? Like, what does it mean for us in the future of the core, and really, what role will the core continue to have as it pertains to resiliency? Well, I expect that we'll continue to be leaders in this space. Um, when CEQ was giving instructions on climate action, they referenced some of our web tools. Uh, they held us up as an example, along with a few other agencies of groups that have been sort of doing this for a long time, have managed to make it a normal part of what we do. And so I expect that we'll continue to to lead. Uh, for us, it's a very common sense thing to do. Climate is average weather or statistical weather. And so the fact that the climate is changing means that we're somewhat uncertain about what the future weather might look like. But that's, that's okay. We're uncertain about lots of things. We're uncertain about the future population of some town. You know, we're uncertain about the future in rate of inflation or discount rate. So these are all things that we can live with and, and work with. We just have to embrace uncertainty. And as we go forward, I imagine that we're gonna continue to get better and better models and better information about the future. And so in one sense, the uncertainty will become smaller. Uh, not always, not every year, someday, some years it gets bigger because you recognize things you didn't even know you didn't know before. But over the long run, I expect that as the models get better, the projections get better, we'll have less uncertainty. But counteracting that at the same time is we're continuing to progress through time and the climate is changing faster and faster. A lot of our projections, for example, go out to 2100. Well, 2100 ain't what it used to be. And so we need to start looking out to 2150, for example. So we're gonna have to continue to get better and better at this. But at the same time, we have the advantage of getting better and better information. And so as we get more better actionable climate science, our techniques will improve. But unfortunately, at the same time, the climate will just keep changing too. It's gonna be a long process, but I think we're well positioned because of the way that we've mainstreamed it into our process to keep making this just a normal part of our normal business process and not as something that's just tacked on, added on at the end. And for us, that works very well. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, for sure. It's something that the core is going to have to be flexible as we move along. I do know that our partners will play a big role in that. And so what is the role of the non-federal partners and the stakeholders with climate resilience? How does you say support their work as well? That's a really great question. I'm glad you asked that. We work very closely with our partners in all projects. That's regardless of, of climate change. But where climate becomes very important for the sponsor is, for one thing, when we undertake an adaptable approach, we have to make sure that we're all on the same page and we're all clear-eyed about how those adaptations are going to occur in the future. Because on some level, adaptation implies trust in future decision makers. We can make a levy that has the capacity to be raised in the future, 
but we have to trust that people will do that. And so the sponsors and the core together are sort of taking this leap together where we are not only understanding each other, but also having to communicate very carefully with the public and in our documents and our reports that we've created this capacity for adaptation as the conditions change. It's important for people to understand that for the project to perform, that adaptation is gonna to have to happen in the future. The other part that's super critical is communicating risk, communicating residual risk, because we all know that it's difficult enough to communicate to the public about what happens if a project doesn't perform or what does it look like even with the project in place how much risk is there going to be anyway because we can't always eliminate can never eliminate all risk but that becomes exponentially more difficult when the risk is changing so when risk is changing over time we have to be very smart about how we communicate so that people don't get the wrong idea and so sponsors are just absolutely critical there because nobody understands their area the way the sponsor does. And so they're the ones who can really provide a lot of value by understanding their communities and understanding the best way to communicate with the communities about how the conditions are expected to change over time and what the people can expect in terms of project performance as that conditions change. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's really interesting and great to work with non-federal entities because the reality is non-federal entities still actually build out more water resource infrastructure than the federal government does. Uh, and it's really, it's not even close. So making sure that they're part of the solution and getting them engaged is really important and being able to share our technical expertise. And it sounds like, you know, needing to be able to work with so many sponsors and really trying to work with the climate change overall as an agency, kind of curious, like what kind of team do you have that's tackling this? Is this something where you have team members in literally every district across the Corps of Engineers to work with folks? Uh, is it a small team at headquarters? Like, how are you guys managing this and and where do you need help or where can our listeners, um, if they're interested in this, how could they participate? Um, email me. We have a very small team at headquarters. We have just a couple of people who manage the preparedness and resilience program within engineering and construction. Now, I wanna make sure that I, I mention that there's a whole other side of the climate change coin. Aside from preparedness and resilience, there's also the climate mitigation side where we do energy and water efficiency. We emit less carbon, we emit less greenhouse gases so that in the future we have less preparedness and resilience to do and even more importantly, less impact to deal with. So the sustainability people are also extremely important and I have nothing but the utmost respect for them, but that's a different effort from the preparedness and resilience piece, which lives within engineering and construction because it's such a big part of how we design and build. But the, you know, the couple or three of us at headquarters are not by any means the whole team. We have a community of practice that consists of over 200 people across the Corps of Engineers. I don't know if it includes someone from every single district, but I hope it does. It, now I'm curious, but uh, it certainly includes people from across the Corps of Engineers and every, every MSC. We as a community have chosen to make climate literacy something that is spread across 
our whole agency. We don't want it to be a center of expertise. We want everyone to be climate literate and making this part of their normal business process. So we have trainings we teach at division level. We have uh, monthly calls. We have webinars. Uh, like I said, we create these web-based tools that make our analyses faster and cheaper and more consistent and more repeatable. And so all of those things are done mostly by the community. It's mostly people who are interested. You've got a coastal engineer who says, sea level change is causing, is making it difficult for me to calibrate my beach model. You know, uh, what can we do? And we get together and we think about, can we come up with a new technique or can we write a white paper of best practices so that other people can, can follow along? Or we've got people who are very versed in hydrology modeling and they may have ideas of how to test data sets to see if anything has been changing in the data set. And so we'll get a team together and we'll fund them and they'll write uh, technical guidance for how to do those statistical tests. And so it's really a team effort and it's really across the Corps of Engineers with the subject matter experts and the whole community working together. Oh, that's great, Will. And really, thanks for sharing so much information on maybe the most important topic of our lives, climate change and the impacts that it'll have on us. So it's great to see that the Corps is is a leader today and going to be a leader in the future in this er area and, and really commend you and your team and, and everybody out there that's listening, uh, that's working on, on climate change and in ensuring that we have resilient communities that uh, can bounce back after some of these events. So uh, just thanks for being here today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you, and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.